Section 2 of G.K. Chesterton in America, A Catholic Review of the Week. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G.K. Chesterton in America, A Catholic Review of the Week by G.K. Chesterton. Section 2. What was Rationalism? There are a number of minor fictions, mere points of punctilio and fashion, which encumber the frank discussion of philosophy and literature. A paper might, on its literary side, do a great deal of good in clearing away the little unnecessary lies. In its more strenuous departments, it should contend against large constructive lies, lies necessary to those who tell them. The man with the brain who organizes labor, the firm but conciliatory statesman, the man who is an authority on death or marriage, these men could not do a day's work without telling lies. But the minor fictions, these need the stiffness taken out of them. I tried to take the stiffness out of one of them in a review I wrote recently. In that case, it was the notion that one must always avoid, or more frequently conceal, the act of criticizing a book written by a friend. Would it not be simpler to say, naturally, well, it is likely enough that the sort of man I like would write the sort of book I like, but these are my serious reasons for liking it. Nay, I think a little more casual candor would improve the chances even of the snobbish party press. Even the official journalists would serve their masters better if they dropped the needless details of fiction, retaining only the large, majestic, essential lies. It surely is not necessary for them to say that every speech of their favorite politician is one of his best, and that the speech of their particular Bet noir in politics is one of his worst. Nor is it necessary to state that the former always sits down flushed with victory and the latter pale and querulous from defeat. A man avowedly writing a romance would be more realistic. Now, there are two more of these stiff pieces of literary etiquette which I think have become a hypocritical nuisance and I propose to violate them in this article. One of them is the high and mighty business about never answering criticisms. The other is the tradition that, if you do answer criticisms, you must never own yourself wrong. I will take the case of my little book on Victorian literature. It was subjected by many people to two criticisms, one small, the other large one mainly true, the other, I think, largely false. To take the small one first, it has been brought to my notice by a critic who wrote to point out that the saying about woman being civilized by man is uttered by Sir Austin and not Meredith in his own person. Now, if I thought a sort of thin-skinned obstinacy a part of my dignity, I could answer that there are utterances put into the mouths of characters 
which nevertheless clearly come from the author. And there would be the jolly old bottomless argument about the story and the moral. And I could have a high old time with the soliloquy and the Greek chorus and the man, Shakespeare, and all the rest of it. I think it far simpler to say that, on reflection, I think this critic, a cleric, is right. And that, though Meredith did take the view I described, the passage I quoted did not prove it. On the same principle, which surely makes the intercourse of gentlemen of letters somewhat easier, I should agree with part, if not the whole, of the larger criticism offered by my second critic. That concerned with the central citadel, which I called Victorian rationalism, or the Victorian compromise. When my critic suggests that I did not sufficiently define this central Victorian thing, I think he is right. When he suggests that it was not there, or did not play the part I give it, I think he is wrong. I think heartily he is wrong, and I care nothing for anything except which of us is right. When he suggests that it was not there, or did not play the part I give it, I give him and the others free leave to say that I am putting into this paper a chapter I forgot to put into my book. Indeed, to be candid once more, I am. I may begin by saying that I do not mean by rationalism the application of reason to phenomena and the acceptance of its verdicts. I mean it, about as much as I mean by socialism, the art of being sociable. Socialists are far from sociable, but they exist. Rationalists were far from rational, but they once existed. The result of applying reason to phenomena is to discover that they are merely phenomenal. And if that is being a rationalist, I am a rationalist. The rational way of accepting a verdict is to accept it as a decision about certain special phenomena. He would be far from rational, for instance, who should read the verdict, not guilty, as meaning without sin. What rationalism really was, and in some corners still is, is substantially this. It was a premature synthesis. It was not the opening of the house of reason, but the impatient closing of it. It did not open the human head like a new hotel. It shut the human head like a packed bag. I call it the Victorian Compromise, because it put in the bag as many of the old relics and reverences as it could. I call it the Victorian Rationalism, because it was guided in its selection by a very clear but very crude theory. In other words, it planned out the packing scientifically, but it never asked whether the bag was big enough. The result on which I wish specially to insist was this, that this false finality of the reason has behind it a prolonged and increasing torture to the instincts. That is what I mean when I say that Dickens rebelled against it ignorantly and by the light of nature. This was why the war against it was a war of poets 
sometimes as irrational as a war of animals. Ever since rationalism became the rule, the mysterious thing called human nature has scratched like a cat in a cupboard. I think the only way I can convey my conviction is by a string of examples. Deepest of all the examples, of course, was that loss of the sense of design of providence, more admitted than expressed, that went with rationalism in its narrower sense. I am not talking about the truth or falsehood of theism, but only about this sense of abnormality and emptiness that went with its loss. The Victorian rationalists were always adopting a compromise because it was comfortable, and keeping it on, though it was more and more uncomfortable. The secular attitude was the strongest case of this. The rationalists found that what they had dropped was not merely some pedantic definition called a personal god, but was the whole of that sense that a man's life means something, that it is acted before a witness and brought to a test, which is the first and most natural thought in the man's mind. Secularly considered, there did not, as Dent Pittman said, seem to be any story in it. I repeat that I am only speaking of the psychological fact of a strain. The atheist had to remind himself that he was an atheist more often, and that is saying a good deal than the Christian that he was a Christian. The current of the blood ran the contrary way. The quick-witted atheist was always saying, Thank God! The slow-witted atheist talked about the purposes of nature. I have never questioned that the atheist is heroic. He is heroic because he is ascetic. He can never be wholly human. He has lopped off a limb. But take another and easier case, which I will call the case of beggars. This is where the Manchester School comes in. I agree with one of my critics who suggested that reason itself refuted the Manchester School. I should add that reason itself refuted rationalism. For me the point is that a definite historical sect, appealing to reason, put an appalling strain on the civilized emotions. It was supposed to be proved in some way that the only lawful way of being philanthropic was to let a man starve in Hamsditch because there was a job for him in Hull. It was a compromise, for even the miserable Malthus dared not denounce all charity, but said alms should be given very sparingly. But it was a rationalist compromise because it went against the instincts in the name of an indirect piece of demonstration. And it was a cruel compromise, not only to the poor man who could not get a penny, but to the rich man who could not give one. The good Victorian walked the street in a torture of embarrassment, ashamed of giving money and ashamed of not giving it. Third case, the case of soldiers. Here again, it was supposed to have been proved that military glory was a gory superstition, that peace achieved by commerce was a nobler thing. 
and here again the Victorian mind could not keep it up, except as a kind of compromise. Thackeray was a very typical Victorian, and he wrote a ballad called The Chronicle of the Drum. It is followed by an epilogue that seems meant as an antidote. In this he says that war is very despicable, really, and soldiers only know the art of cutting throats. But the note is false. The strain is evident. The strain of the Christian telling himself he is a Quaker. For no one who really despised war could have written the Chronicle of the Drum at all. The Case of Ghosts, of Fairies and Similar Things in every Victorian home there was a kind of permanent crisis of concealment about the existence of the supernatural. Everyone had to pretend to believe in Santa Claus because no one could simply say that he believed or disbelieved in St. Nicholas. And the strange result has been that the old rational mind has narrowed and hardened, while the more modern mystical mind has freed itself. Every respectable nurse tells every respectable baby that there are no such things as ghosts. And all the time the most subtle and advanced intellects, from Mr. Henry James to Mr. Algernon Blackwood, are always writing that there are. Lastly, I touch later and more perilous ground, but I think the suffragettes are the last orgy of rationalism. A man honestly admiring them feels a pain in the head. He is fighting with nature. He has to tell himself again and again that his aged mother carried under a policeman's arm is a citizen. That sex has nothing to do with it. That ridicule proves nothing. That self-sacrifice proves much. But all the time his subconsciousness goes on repeating like a refrain, I don't like my mother under a policeman's arm. I don't like it. I don't. I don't. I don't. That is what I mean by rationalism. That hasty and false simplification of the findings of reason from which our time awoke as from a daydream, only to find that the poor man had a hole in his stomach and the rich man a hole in his head. The rationalist was pursued by enemies, blind but strong. The most terrible enemies a man has, the things he has forgotten. G.K. Chesterton End of Section 2 What was Rationalism? Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.